Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
is uh, Halloween. And even if you dress up, I'm not going to give you candy. So just get used to that. Actually, on the church calendar, today is known as Reformation Day. The reason for that is that it was on this day, October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg to begin what was supposed to be a debate about changing some of the theological stances of the Catholic Church. So we as Protestant people, we mark that day as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. We here at GCA, we are a Reformed Church. When we say we are Reformed, what we mean is we continue the theology that came from the Protestant Reformation. And so we believe things like God is absolutely sovereign. We believe things like this is the very word of God that we have in front of us. And so we spend our mornings after singing and praying, we spend our mornings just digging into the Bible. So we don't have a whole lot of other falderall for you. We don't have a lot of other programs for you, and I'm not going to tap dance. But we just dig into the word of God week by week. Today we are in our second week of our study out of the book of Revelation. There was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm when I said that we were going to study the book of Revelation and that we were going to go through it verse by verse, thought by thought, concept by concept, really going to take our time going through it. And I think the reason for that enthusiasm is because the world right now, I don't know if you've noticed, is out of its collective mind. The world is just nuts. And so it's good to know that God in heaven is absolutely sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He's still on his throne. He did not fall off it. And he is continuing to run the world according to what he already told us was going to happen. For 20 years, I've been standing up here in this pulpit and saying, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And then you would all laugh at me. You're not laughing anymore. Turns out I was right. And you know why I was right? Because I read the Bible. Because the Bible says it's going to get worse. It's going to get dark before it gets light. It's a glorious darkness. But it's going to get more insane here in this world before it suddenly gets much, much better. And so there is this renewed interest in things like prophecy within the Bible. This morning, we're going to finally get, after last week's introduction, we're going to finally get to Revelation 1.1, but not yet. (laughs) Turn, if you would, to the book of Luke. You're looking for Luke 17 in your Bible. Because before we can even understand the first verse of the book of Revelation, we have to understand one very important concept, and I hope that I can drill this home this morning. We talk a lot about the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. We talk about the fact that he is a king on his throne. 
We talk about the fact that he can do whatever he wants to do with whomever he wants to do it, any time he wants to do it, any way he wants to do it, whenever and wherever he decides to do it. He can do whatever he wants. He's the sovereign king. And we like that idea, especially when we are receiving benefits and blessings from that sovereign king. But the relationship that Jesus describes and that John describes is that God is so sovereign that we ought to view him as so high above us, as so separate from us, as so unlike us, that the relationship is one of absolute sovereign and slave. Now, because of what has happened in modern American and European history, we don't like that word slave because it has all kind of connotations to it. But the simple fact is the Greek word doulos being used by Paul, being used by John as Jesus is going to use it here, is a word that means nothing but slave. The modern translations will change it slightly, say bondservant or bondslave. But the simple fact is, it means slave. And I think sometimes we don't consider ourselves, we don't think of ourselves as being slave to God. And yet that's exactly how the Bible describes us. It is true that Jesus refers to us as brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. It's true that we are the body and the bride of Christ. It's true that God has, by his astounding grace, blessed us with all of this other verbiage, but the key concept that you have to be grounded in before you can really understand and celebrate the astounding grace of God is that you have to understand that he owed you nothing because you are, after all, slave to God. And that means that whatever he does to you, whenever he does it to you, whatever that thing may be, no matter how difficult your life is, no matter how many things you didn't get that you thought you deserved, the simple fact is slave. And slaves have no rights. Slaves don't get any benefits. Slave. Here's the way Jesus put it. I'm in Luke 17. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending to the sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, come in from his work, which of you are going to say, oh, come immediately and sit down and eat? Well, if you have a slave, if you have a servant, you're not going to serve him. He's there to serve you. Verse 8 says, But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and then properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded him, does he? This is Jesus saying, I'm master your slave. And don't think that I owe you anything and don't think that just because you were obedient to me that I ought to thank you for that. He said, you know that in the way that you conduct your own household. You know that in the way that our society works. You know that when the servant comes in from the field, you don't immediately say, oh, good job, sit down, let me serve you. 
Instead, he says, you know, you're going to sit down, even though he has worked all day, you're going to say to him, now get yourself dressed properly, and then come in and serve me. And after I've eaten, and after I'm satisfied, then you can sit and eat. Why? Because I'm master, you're slave. Do you see the relationship that Jesus is spelling out here? So you too, says verse 10. Now the application. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So the attitude of Jesus toward the relationship between the sovereign and those that belong to the sovereign is that we ought to have an understanding, we ought to have a comprehension of the difference between us and him. You're not God, God's not you. And that we need to understand that he can and does do whatever he wants to do, and our only obedient response to that is, yes, sir. You bow the knee, you get down in front of him, and you say, you're God, and I'm not. Now, it is astounding grace. It's amazing grace that God then treats us with the kind of kindness that he does, that he does bless us, that he does feed us, that he does take care of us. But never, never forget that the relationship is slave. And you don't have a right to go to him and say, why are you doing it like this? Why are you making the world this crazy? This hurts me. Do you not see the damage that's being done to me? Why are you doing it this way? You don't have the right to say that. Why? Slave! I'm going to drill that into your head. Doulos is the Greek word, and all it means is slave. With that introduction, we can now read Revelation 1.1. Because John is going to refer to himself and refer to all of us collectively as slaves to Jesus Christ. And we need to be able to feel the import of that language. This is a word directly from Christ to his slaves so that we can have a better comprehension of who he is and what he's doing and that our answer repeatedly is, yes, sir. You got it? Okay, that was all introduction. Apocalypsis is the word, I told you last week, that is translated revelation. The introduction to the book, Apocalypsis, Yesu Christu. Now, the reason that I bring that up, and I'm going to get a little bit technical on you if you don't mind. The reason I bring it up is that that particular phrase is rendered as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And last week, I put some great emphasis on the fact that what is being uncovered in this book, what is being revealed in this book, is Jesus Christ. Sometimes people come to the book of Revelation, and they're mostly interested in 666, or they're mostly interested in figuring out the millennial debate. But the truth is, the whole book, beginning to end, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. But boy, you don't even get any further than the first phrase, the introduction to the book, before there is controversy, before there is disagreement between biblical scholars. 
That phrase can be interpreted as an objective genitive. Anybody want to tell me what that means? No, I didn't think so. In other words, it's the revelation about Jesus Christ. And that's the way that I presented it to you last week. It is Jesus Christ who is being revealed in the book. But there is also a way of reading it that would be a subjective genitive, in which case it's the revelation from Jesus Christ. And there is certainly textual evidence to make that argument as well. Because in it, we read that this is the revelation which God gave to Christ to show his slaves the things that must shortly take place. So so then it's really a revelation that Jesus Christ himself was given from God. And then Jesus faithfully, as the faithful and true witness, brought that unveiling to his slaves to show him the things that God wants him to see. But that's not all. There are also scholars who will argue that it is a general genitive or what is known as a plenary genitive, in which case it's not either or, it's both. And actually, I think that's the way that it ought to be read. That's the way that these words ought to be understood. Because it is inarguably, from all the evidence I showed you last week, it is inarguably the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is being revealed throughout the book. Right away, as soon as John sees him with his eyes like fire and his hair like white wool. Okay, that's the first revealing of who Jesus really is. No longer a baby in the manger. No longer walking in shoe leather here on planet earth. He is actually the exalted Lord sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. Okay, that's the revealing of Jesus Christ. But then it's impossible to argue that this is not also a revelation from Jesus Christ because it was given by God to Jesus to show his slaves. In fact, if you would, Micah, Would you look up Revelation 22, 16 for a moment? Because Revelation 22 is the end of the book. And yet again, we're going to see, like bookends, we're going to see that it is a revelation given by God to Jesus for the revelation to his slaves. If you would, read that for us all, Micah. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus says, it's me. I'm the bright morning star. There's no question that it's Jesus talking. And yet he's saying, these things have been given to me from God to tell you. So it is a revelation from Jesus Christ to you because you are, after all, his slaves. And he in revealing himself, is going to demonstrate his complete control of the future. Here, I'll explain it this way. I didn't grow up always understanding Reformation theology. I didn't grow up understanding that God's sovereign. I didn't grow up believing that God was completely in charge. Instead, I grew up in the kind of Lutheran church where Martin Luther would not be welcome. I grew up in the sort of church where you chose, you decide, it's really all up to you, up, up, up with people. It was that kind of church. And so when I first came in contact with the idea that God was absolutely sovereign, 
It was foreign to me. But it wasn't the theology of absolute sovereignty in the Bible that convinced me. It was my understanding of prophecy. Because the only way prophecy works is if the future is definite. The only way that God can say this is what's going to happen, and then sure enough it happens, is if he is in charge of what happens. He doesn't just know what's going to happen. He decrees what's going to happen. He lays out what's going to happen. He sends prophets throughout the Old Testament to say what's going to happen. And then we have human history that demonstrates and proves that it happened. Now, that's either really, really lucky on God's part or he's sovereign. He's the one who's in charge because these things that he predicts keep happening. And he has a perfect batting average going so far. You can't find anything in the Bible that is ever predicted by God. I'll use the word predicted. There's nothing that God ever decrees in a future sense that does not come to actually pass. And so this revelation is just like the Old Testament prophets in that it must come to pass. It has to. If it doesn't, the Bible's not true. God's not God. God's not sovereign. Let's go home. There's a lot of sinning to do. But even the language in the introduction here in the first sentence says, these are things that have to happen. This is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his bondservants, to his slaves. That's the word doulos. The NASB watered it down a little bit, made it bondservants. He gave it to his slaves to show his slaves the things which must shortly come to pass. Okay, so now we've gotten that far, and there's yet another controversy, because people want to argue about the word shortly come to pass. Does that mean that it's all going to happen immediately? If it's going to happen immediately, and if John wrote before 70 AD, people use that argument in order to say, see, it all happened in 70 AD, because that's shortly coming to pass for John's time. Except that last week I showed you that he was on the Isle of Patmos, 92 to 96 AD. That's after 70 AD. Therefore, John was not referring to the things of 70 AD. Have I lost anybody yet? The reality is that this word shortly is actually the Greek word tacos, not tacos. I didn't want to make anybody hungry. But T-A-C-H-O-S in English letters, it's the word from which we get tachometer. What does a tachometer do? It records the cycles of an engine as it's spinning, so it has to do with speed. It has to do with tracking the speed of something. This word, takas, things that must soon take place, is translated several different ways, shortly take place or quickly take place. In other words, what it means is once it starts, it's going to take off. Once it begins, it's going to happen very quickly. Here, let's do a quick test. Does anybody here remember March of 2020? Remember February of 2020? Wasn't that good? 
Wasn't life good? We could get up and go places and do things, and we weren't all masked up, and people weren't taking jabs in their arms. Everything was good. Do you realize that's not even two years ago? Do you realize that's 20 months ago? And how quickly everything changed? It changed with such rapidity that it's just mind-boggling. That's the word tacos. That things happen once they begin. They happen really quickly. I actually wrote down a couple of different translations here just so you can see the different ways the translators struggle to translate that word. Actually, this is Luke 18.8. It's the exact same phrase, the exact same word. The English Standard Version says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That's that same word, tacos. The Berean Study Bible, translating the exact same verse, says, I tell you, he will promptly carry out justice. The Berean Literal Bible says, I say to you that he will execute their avenging in quickness. The King James Bible says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. So see, there's just no unanimity on how to translate the word tacos. What it means is quickly, shortly, with rapidity. In other words, once it begins, it's going to happen quickly. And he, Jesus, sent and communicated it by his angel to John. And then John's going to introduce himself. We have to talk about this word angel. We really can't get very far in this book, can we, without explanation. The word angel is a Greek word, angelos, which actually means messenger. That's all that it means. Because we have the tradition of angels in our head, every time we see the word angel, we think of making snow angels or we think of Christmas decorations or we think of little cherubim floating in the skies. We think of all of these traditional notions of angels, but all the Greek word means is messenger because in a moment, Jesus is going to say that he holds the messengers of the seven churches of Asia in his hand. But the word is translated angels in the English language, which makes us think, oh, what? There's an angel in each of those seven churches? No, it's the preacher. It's the speaker. It's the communicator. It's the one who is the messenger from God to those churches. And so Jesus received this revelation, this unveiling. God gave it to him to show it to his slaves These are the things which must quickly, rapidly take place. And then he, Jesus, sent and communicated all of this by his messenger to his slave, John. So John recognizes himself as being a slave to Jesus. I know I've already beat this to death this morning, but I'm going to do it again. Why? Because I have the microphone and I can... John refers to himself as a slave. Now, he's got a much more difficult life going at this moment than any of us have right now. You're sitting fully clothed, walk on carpet, sitting in air conditioning. You had some breakfast this morning. You've got a good life going right now. 
John is banished to the Isle of Patmos. He has been tortured by the Roman authorities who want him to shut up and quit talking about Jesus. He's been imprisoned. He's been ostracized. He's the last of the living apostles. An old man at this point and then is relegated to an island to live out his life. He's having a tough life. And all he has to do to go home and have good life again is say, never mind, we made it up. <laughs> never mind, that whole Jesus thing? We just we said that because we were upset because, well, the guy we were following, you killed him. And so we just said, well, he's alive again. He's up again. That, that was the story we told. All he had to do was say that, and he gets to go home and be comfortable again. And he never said it. He never recanted. He never said anything except Jesus is the almighty God. He is Lord. He is master. He is sovereign, and I am his slave. And John knew what that meant because he was living a torturous life at that moment and was willing to go through that for sake of the glory of God because he knew who he belonged to. I belong to the absolute sovereign of the universe. I can't do anything except preach his message because after all, he's God. I'm not. I belong to him. Do you get that slave language? Do you understand John's perspective? And so he says that we collectively, as the slaves of Christ, have been given the wonder, the marvelousness of this message, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, which came to us from an angel, from a messenger of Jesus, and it was given to John the Apostle, to John who is slave to Jesus Christ, so that he could tell other slaves. Pretty amazing language. Now John's going to tell you who he is. John... Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word witness there and the word testimony there, both are variations on the same root word, martyr, from which we get martyr. He is a witness. He actually walked and talked with Jesus Christ. He actually saw Jesus in his ministry. He actually saw the miracles of Jesus. He actually saw Jesus in shoe leather here on planet Earth. And then he was willing to witness even knowing that it was going to cost him his life. That he could be martyred just like all the other apostles for telling about Jesus. And yet. The first thing he wants you to know about himself as he's introducing himself so that his reading audience would understand who this revelation is coming from. The first thing he wants you to know is I'm the one who actually saw and gave testimony both to the word of God. Now, at the time he was saying that, what word of God actually existed? There was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament, which was full of prophecies about Jesus. And so when he says, I bore witness to the word of God, he's saying, I bear witness that the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament and the shadows of the Old Testament 
all are foretelling Christ. They're all pointing towards Christ who is the substance. And so I also bear the testimony of Jesus Christ. And where did he learn the testimony of Jesus Christ? From the word of God. So I bear witness to the word of God that it faithfully told about the Christ who has come. And then I saw him, I touched him, I ate with him, I loved him, and I bear testimony to Jesus, the Messiah, even to everything that I saw. Okay, really, really important principle. As we're going through the book of Revelation, here is ground rule number one. Nobody knows more about what John saw than John does. Is that obvious enough? It's necessary to say that because there are lots of people saying lots of things about the book of Revelation and sometimes the things they end up saying aren't in the Revelation anywhere. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Later on in the book, whenever we get there, years from now, whenever we get to... Whenever we get to the 144,000, John tells us that the 144,000 are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he tells us who they are. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, that makes 144,000, and he says they're of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know what that means according to some interpreters? The church. That's not what John said. That's not what John saw. John knows the word church. He uses the word church. If he had meant church, he'd have said church. But he didn't say church. He said 12 tribes of Israel. So then what did he mean when he said that? He meant 12 tribes of Israel. But if your interpretation of the 144,000 is that's the church, you have now claimed to know more about what John saw than John did. John saw 144,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But then people come along 2,000 years later and say, now what John saw was a symbolic representation of the church. And if that's what John had meant, that's what John would have said. So that's why it's so important to remember that nobody knows more about what John saw than John does. On the question of what did John see, John is the subject matter expert. You got it? So he, as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, he, as a faithful witness to the word of God, is going to use the word of God. I mean, the book of Revelation is just chock full of Old Testament references. And so he's going to use the word of God to demonstrate the unveiling of Jesus Christ and being a faithful slave to the word of God and to the sovereign. He is making sure that he is saying exactly what he's supposed to say, which is why he took the time to say, I wrote down everything I saw. This is what I saw. So no matter how you want to understand it, no matter what you want to do with it, What you cannot do is change it. 
You have to deal with what it actually says. I'm John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that I saw. And now comes the blessing. Blessed is he that reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. The fact that people hear it implies that when he says, blessed is he who reads it, that he's reading it out loud. Remember that there was limited literacy in the first century. And so somebody, when they would receive the letter, would also have to read the letter to other people. And John says that there is a blessing involved both in the reading, in the proclaiming of it, and also in the hearing of the words of this prophecy. I love the word that is translated read here. Anagonosko is the word. Gnosko in the Greek language means to know stuff. If you have knowledge, you have gnosko. But ana, that prefix, means again. Just like anastasis, stand up again. This word, translated read, means to know something again. In other words, the person who wrote it in the first place knew it. And then they handed you a book of what they knew. And when you read it, you get to know it too. You know it again. I think that's a great word. And I'm sorry that in the translations it was just translated read. Because we think, yeah, yeah, I'm reading it. But reading is an astounding, amazing thing. God gave language to human beings so that he could communicate with them. And one of the ways that he communicates with them is by his word. And then he gives you the ability to read it so that you can think the thoughts of God after him. So that you know the things that God wants you to know. Reading the very word of God is knowing Again, the things that God alone knows that you couldn't naturally know had he not told you and he had somebody write it down so that 2,000 years later you could also know it. It's a brilliant word. So blessed is he who gets to know all of this. And those who hear the words of this prophecy and then take heed, pay attention to the things that are written in this book, because the time is near. John, just like all of the first century church, had this sense of imminency. They had this sense that Jesus was going to be back, and hopefully soon. To this very day, we're still told to pray, thy kingdom come. That's the hope that it's going to be soon. It's going to be right now. I've added those words, by the way. Whenever I do pray the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I always add, soon, let's go. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy and heeds, pays attention to the things that are written in it because the time is always right now. Christ could break into human history 
at any point. And these things that must happen quickly can start any time. Again, February of 2020, you didn't know what was coming. You woke up the next day and suddenly everything was different. That's what it's going to be like when Christ begins everything that you're going to find in this book. When it begins, it's going to happen very quickly, and it can happen whenever he decides that it's time. Our God, the same God who set feasts in the Old Testament, set times when all the Jews who could travel would come to Jerusalem and have feasts three times a year to him. He is a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of set times. We read in the book of John that when the fullness of time came, Jesus came to the planet. God is on a calendar. He's got a time. He has determined when these things are going to happen and how quickly they're going to happen. He even tells us how quickly. So this is all going to happen according to his plan. What John wants you to know is keep looking up because it can be any time. John, verse 4. To the seven churches that are in Asia. I told you last week that these are the seven churches that John was bishop over. John was in Ephesus when he was sent to the Isle of Patmos. After he was released from Patmos, he went back to Ephesus. And he had a tremendous amount of influence over the seven churches that are listed here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Because from Ephesus, which is a port city, there is a circular trade route. And if you start that circular route going north and heading east, it will circle around and bring you back to Ephesus. And the churches that are named here in the book of Revelation are all on that route in order. If you just start and go north, you're going to hit every one of these cities. And so it's natural that God would use John to be the messenger to these seven particular cities. After all, he already has influence in those cities. He has already set up eldership in those cities. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's another way of saying eternal God. We know he's referring to God here because in verse 8, we read, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the one who has all the power, the Sovereign One, who has all the might. So we know that this first reference is to God Himself. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. A couple really interesting things to notice here. First, He has a throne. Why? He's king. He's sovereign. He's ruler. Let's see if you've learned anything this morning. He's sovereign ruler. You're slave. He sits on his throne, and before his throne are seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, you can go through the whole Bible, and the only place where you're going to find reference to seven spirits before the throne of God is in the book of Isaiah, which we've been studying here on Wednesday nights. In Isaiah 11, the first two verses say, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. 
Okay, so we're talking about the Davidic lineage, talking about the Davidic promise that one day a descendant of his is going to sit on his throne ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh, will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding and the spirit of counsel and the spirit of strength and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That may be what John is referring to here where he refers to God sitting on his throne and that there are seven spirits who are before his throne. If that is the case, if this passage from Isaiah is what he's referring to, then here's what we know. For you to receive the Holy Spirit of God, that is a gift from God. God has to give you his Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you can get holiness or righteousness. He has to give that to you. But that also then means... That wisdom, the spirit of wisdom, and even the spirit of understanding, God has to give it to you. It's before his throne. It's not in your natural flesh. Understanding and counsel, strength, strength of character, strength of devotion to God. He, he has to give you all that. And the spirit of knowledge and reverence and fear of the Lord. He has to give you all that because it is part of his majesty, his throne, his demonstration of himself. And so if you have any comprehension of God whatsoever, he has to give it to you. It's amazing. The grace of God who would give you an understanding. You, a slave, slimy little you, wormy little you, stupid little you, that he would give you comprehension of him and of his majesty, and of his glory, and would teach you to fear him, would teach you to reverence him. And that he would do that for you is amazing grace. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace. Paul uses that phrase a lot. I know this is John writing here, but Paul also uses the phrase, meaning that it was common among the apostles, grace and peace. You see it in the introduction and in the closing of so many letters in the New Testament, grace and peace, grace and peace. And it's always in that order. It's never peace and grace, because if you're going to have peace with God, he has to be gracious to you. First, there has to be grace from God. Then there's going to be peace between you two. The word peace, irene in the Greek, means the stopping or the ceasing of againstness. Because you, in your sinful flesh, you, who I just described as wormy, little, slimy, little, stupid, little you, you, there's you, fleshly you, and then there's the grand and glorious God. One of the two of you has to make peace between you. Because you're at enmity with each other. Because you're a dreadful sinner. You're completely depraved. And he's glorious and holy and not spotted, not touched with sin. He encases himself in a light that no man approaches. And then you're going to get to him? How are you going to get to him? One of the two of you has to stop the againstness between the two of you. And you can't do it. So he did it. And that's grace. 
which is why you have peace. And so grace and peace, not from you, grace and peace from you because you did it. By golly, we're proud of you. Grace and peace from God, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Spirit. The fullness of the Trinity demonstrated right there in the introduction. But then listen to this description of Jesus Christ. The first description that John offers us is that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. You could read right past that without understanding the importance of it. What he is saying is, whatever Jesus said, truth. Count on it. Believe it. Jesus himself at one point said to his apostles, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may also be. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And then he said, as if he needed to, then he said, and if it were not so, I would have told you. Why would he say that? Because he is the faithful. He is the true witness. He is the one who came to earth to represent God to us weaselly worms. He came down here to this planet to tell us things we couldn't possibly know otherwise. And he faithfully, truthfully told us these things about God because he is a faithful and a true witness to the things of God. Which means, since no man has ever seen God, since none of us have ever had a conversation one-on-one, face-to-face with God, that means that everything we need to know about God can be found in Jesus Christ. He is a faithful witness. So John puts that right up front, that whatever Jesus has said, you can trust it. And he is the firstborn of the dead. That word firstborn there, prototokos, doesn't mean first chronologically. Because you can look in the Old Testament and there were other people who died and then were raised again. What it means is the primary one. He is the first one who not only completely died, but then was raised to eternal life, never to die again. Everybody else who was raised from the dead died again. But he is the primary one. In other words, if he didn't rise from the dead and stay alive, none of us have any hope. There's no resurrection for us if there's no resurrection for him. And the fact that he rose again, the demonstrable historic fact that he's alive today, means that we're going to rise again, means that we're going to live forever in the presence of God, means that we're going to be resurrected, given a new body. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. All of that is coming. All of that must happen. All of that is our future, and we know that because the one who told us is a faithful witness, and he is the firstborn of the dead. And... He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Always was, always will be. We happen to live in a day and age, we happen to live in a society right now 
where it sure feels like the rulers of this world are imposing their will all over us, making us do stuff and making us think stuff and cancel cultures going crazy. And, and it's real easy to think, boy, the kings of the earth are just out of control. But the kings of the earth, that's not who we wrestle against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. We wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the kings of this earth are ultimately going to be crushed because Christ is going to set up his kingdom that has no end because he is, after all, king of kings. No matter how many other kings there are, no matter how many other kings happen to inhabit this planet, the real king, the true king, the heavenly king, is the king over all those kings. And how does he prove it? By telling us in advance that these kings are going to go crazy. And then sure enough, they do. And all that is is evidence that the Bible knows what it's talking about and that God is absolutely faithful to his word. So cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, I'm going to kind of close on this because this is the astounding part. This is the amen, hallelujah part. This is the part that's just hard to comprehend. I began this morning by saying, slave. In the course of this sermon, I have called you measly little worms. And, and you have to know that from God's perspective, in his perfect majesty, in his perfect holiness, in his perfect righteousness, when he looks on us, his slaves, his creatures, his fallen creatures, his depraved creatures, when he looks on us, he has every right to judge us. He is well within his righteousness and his power. He's well within his own jurisdiction to judge every single one of us. And he's got us dead to rights. So, so far in the book of Revelation, what we've learned is we're slaves. He's almighty. He's all powerful. He's faithful. He is the one who is. He is the one who was. He's the one who is to come. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. He has to tell us in order for us to understand anything important, anything eternal. We are utterly and completely dependent on him. He is not dependent on us. He is the ruler of the earth and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then it says, to him who loves us. Amen. Astounding. Never forget who he is. Never forget who you are. And that he loved you. You want proof that he loved you? He sent his son to die for you. He poured out his wrath on his son in your place. And so Paul writes, in this way he has commended his love toward us. 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Astounding love, amazing love. But wait, it gets better. As if it could. It gets better. Because he loved you, he released us from our sins by his blood. That's part of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's part of the unveiling of who Christ is and what he accomplished for you. That he not only loved you, but he demonstrated that sacrificial love in the way that he was willing to take the wrath of God in your place, poured out his own lifeblood so that you would not have to undergo the wrath of God, and demonstrated all that by releasing you from your sin. I love that word, release. I like the fact that he redeemed us from our sins. I like that he was the sacrifice that paid the sin debt and the sin penalty. I like all that, but I really like the idea of release. Anybody here ever been to jail? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) How good was the day you were released? Good day, huh? Mighty fine day. The day that you've paid your your debt to society, and you're walking free again. You are released. See, if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, you know your sinfulness. You know the many ways that you have failed God. I know the places I've been. I know the things that I've done. I know the thoughts and intentions of my creepy little heart. I know the terrible thoughts that race through my brain in the middle of the night that wake me up and make me go, what was that? What am I thinking? Released. Released from everything you've said, everything you've done, all your rebellion against him, the sinfulness of your flesh, the depravity of your flesh. He's not going to hold it against you by his single sacrifice on the cross. He utterly and completely forgave you and redeemed you, righteousified you, put his own righteousness on your account, did all that because he loved you so much, and you don't deserve it. That's grace. That's amazing grace. That's sovereign grace. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.